EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Europe aims to provide sustainable, affordable and secure energy for its citizens and industries. We in Equinor believe our energy sources and solutions will contribute to the carbon-neutral Europe of the future. The priority is the immediate cessation of all violence and implementation of a ceasefire. The purpose is to protect civilians and to give full humanitarian access in Gaza. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Josep Borrell, the EU's high representative for foreign policy, calling for an end to the deadly surge in violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Unfortunately for him, even though he's the EU's foreign policy chief, he couldn't make that statement on behalf of all of the EU's members, because one of them wouldn't sign up. We'll get into who that was and why, and into how Europe is responding to the conflict more broadly with our podcast panel. We'll also discuss that subject and others with Javier Solana, a predecessor of Borrell's in the top EU foreign policy job, and a former NATO Secretary General too. And we'll catch up on a major foreign policy speech by Armin Laschet, the Conservative candidate to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. So a warm welcome to our Chief Brussels Correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. And to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Now we're going to dive uh, right into the uh, the big controversy of the week around the world, really, and uh, certainly in Europe, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. David, what we've seen, or one of the things we've seen this week, is that there is division within the European Union, right? This is not a union united on this question. How would you sketch out the different camps, if you like, within the European Union on this issue? Well, and of course, this is not new. The EU has never been able to reach a common line on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, you have certain countries like Germany, for whom there's a special relationship with Israel that comes out of the legacy of World War II and the Holocaust. You have countries like Belgium and Sweden and Ireland that are very eager to be tougher on Israel, to really push them on issues related to Palestinians' rights toward a two-state solution. And now, one of the things we're seeing in this conflict in the reaction is some very open and dramatic support for Israel from some countries like Austria, where the Chancellor Sebastian Kurtz flew the Israeli flag over his chancellery building as a sign of support, similar uh, flag flown over Prague Castle in the Czech Republic, and also over the uh, the party headquarters in Berlin. Of the CDU? CDU, yeah. of, uh, Chancellor Merkel's party. So, And in France, some statements from uh, the Lisee, from President Macron, that were much stronger toward Israel than we've seen in the past, with less of a mention of obligations toward the Palestinians and towards a resolution of this conflict, all we think driven by domestic politics of some form or another. Right. Reem, how do you see uh, Macron's role in particular here and what do you think is driving it? So I think there are a few factors uh, playing out here on the Macron side. There's one factor, which is a diplomatic one. He is trying to find a small space for him to play a role. As we know, Macron loves to be on the diplomatic initiative. And so there is a school of thought that thinks that his 
statements that have tilted a little more towards Israel than we've seen in the past, even under his own mandate in 2018, for example, was his way to sort of nod at the Israelis to try to get them to listen to him a bit more. And what I've been told by one diplomatic official is that the Israelis have noticed. That's one side. He's trying to find a way to play a role in the shadow, of course, of America, which is really the main international broker on this. But there's also a domestic political dimension, as David just mentioned. We are a year out from the next presidential election. Macron has been wooing and is wooing the conservative right-wing electorate that tends to be more supportive of uh, Israel. And also, Israel has become, in a way, a way to signal that he is tough on Islamist radicalization and Islamist terrorism that France has really suffered from a lot. And we should always keep in mind that in 2012, there was an attack in France by a Frenchman on a Jewish school in Toulouse, in which the attacker killed three Jewish children. And among the reasons he mentioned for his attack was according to him, to avenge the children of Gaza. And that has remained, in a way, in the mind of of the French. And also, in addition to these terrorist attacks that are have been also anti-Semitic, the 2012 attack wasn't the only one, there is an internal debate in France. Let's not forget that France has the biggest Jewish and also the biggest Muslim population in all of uh, Europe. And it is having to deal with its own issues when it comes to identity, belonging, coming to terms with France's colonial past. And in that way, the President Macron has tried to kind of push back against what he says is American wokeism, you know, Black Lives Matter, that has actually pushed the conversation in the U.S., further closer to the Palestinian cause, whereas in France, it's being rejected as something that is against Republican values. Mm. David, we saw uh, the European Union try and almost succeed in reaching a joint statement, but with one holdout, which was Hungary, a joint statement, you know, calling for an immediate cessation of hostilities, summing up the European view of the conflict. What did you make of that and the way that uh, Joseph Borrell, the um, the high representative for foreign policy, chose to kind of name and shame Hungary, if you like, as, as the holdout? And we know that Hungary is a, an ally of the Israeli government. So this is really interesting. Burrell is doing his best, and his frustration is clearly evident that he can't get the unanimity on this issue that would allow him, for example, to issue statements not just on behalf of the EU, but on behalf of the EU and its member states. And Hungary stopped a statement by the EU ambassador at the UN Security Council over the weekend, again in the informal meeting of foreign affairs, ministers by video conference. Now, interestingly, the countries that have come out in strong support of Israel, like Hungary and like Austria, have also faced charges of anti-Semitism in the past. And some say, well, why is this going on? You know, Sebastian Kurtz, who formed a government coalition at one point with a far-right party accused of anti-Semitism, Orban accused of of presiding over anti-Semitism. And there you have, in the case of the Hungarian prime minister, the self-proclaimed leader of illiberal Christian democracy. So you can see how there is a dynamic there. Others would say that the heavy-handedness that the Israeli government sometimes shows fits with his type of authoritarianism in Budapest at times. But 
under all of this is a deep irony, which is that, in fact, Muslims and Jews have faced rising bias and incidents of, of attacks in Europe, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And in other circumstances, you might expect them to unite sort of against this. And yet, of course, that's not what we see happening. Mm. Yeah, Arim, I guess a final question for you. Even if the European Union could unite, could come up with a joint statement, would it have any impact? Would it actually have any impact on the ground? Would it impact either the way that either the Israeli government or Hamas in this particular case is behaving? You know, the biggest contribution that the Europeans can really hope for right now is one, to be able maybe to be allowed by the American administration to set up some sort of big conference on the peace process in the Middle East that could allow them to kind of show that they're doing something diplomatically. Of course, they are never going to be the final final decision makers. Clearly, the U.S., Egypt are really the countries, the outsiders, of course, outside of the the main people who are the Israelis and the Palestinians, who can really push this forward. The Europeans, other than sort of maybe providing a diplomatic framework, will always be asked at the end of the day to also provide, uh, you know, aid, reconstruction, kind of be the paymasters in, in a way. But these are the confines of the European margin of maneuver here. Yeah. And do you think we've seen much sign of the Americans being particularly interested in the Europeans in this front? There is a a format called the the Quartet, which would have the Europeans, the UN, Russia and the US together to try and uh, resolve, you know, issues like this. It was set up for that purpose. It has not been activated in this case, despite the Russians asking for that to happen. David, do you think the US are kind of going their own way here? You know, the US always goes its own way on on many of these things. And certainly Joe Biden came out in uh, calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. Now, he's walking a tricky tightrope here because the left base of his Democratic Party has moved. I mean, as Reem said, we're seeing quite a lot of pro-Palestinian rhetoric, uncharacteristic perhaps, as uh, the Palestinian cause has gotten wrapped in with uh, racial justice, gender equity, economic justice issues in the United States. And so on that front, we do see, you know, Joe Biden is in a way a grandpa president. And yet now this is not our grandparents' Middle East conflict. And he's in danger of being out of step. That's true also, for example, for the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. But in that case, you know, Biden has to worry first about how to position himself at home within his own party, with his own voters. Europe obviously going to be secondary to that and also mindful of the fact that when he calls Benjamin Netanyahu, they take the call, as Reem pointed out, Emmanuel Macron called and had to wait a day to make that conversation happen. Yeah. And what's also really interesting is the Biden administration was supposed to be the U.S. administration that gets back into multilateralism after the Trump administration was extremely unilateral, especially on Israel and Palestine. We'll remember that it backed Israel's unilateral declaration of Jerusalem as its capital and moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. What is very interesting is that this time around, you know, Secretary Blinken, U.S. State Secretary Blinken was asked, why is it that the U.S has now blocked three statements at the UN Security Council calling for a ceasefire over the past week. And he's basically said that the UN Security Council right now is not useful and that the proposals there right now were not useful. I suspect that what he really meant to say is that they are not constructive. But either way, either of these words is not exactly very encouraging for those who thought that this would be, you know, the big return of America in multilateralism. Okay, I think um, that's an interesting point on which to leave it. David Reem, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, coming next, Chief Europe Correspondent Matt Karnichnik on Armin Laschet's foray into foreign policy. 
and some highlights from my conversation with Javier Solana. A message from Equinor. As Europe greens its economy, we in Equinor are ready to support ambitious targets. Partnering with European industry for large-scale decarbonisation in hard-to-abate sectors by means of clean and low-carbon hydrogen is one of our answers to the European energy transition. Our H2H Solten project in the UK that is planned to produce hydrogen at scale can play a leading role in the UK's journey to net zero by 2050, renew the UK's largest industrial cluster, and unlock technology that will put the UK at the forefront of a global hydrogen economy. We in Equinor hope continental Europe will follow the UK with the same determination. Now, let's continue our foreign policy theme and hear about a big speech on that subject by Armin Laschet, the German Conservative candidate to succeed Angela Merkel. Matt Karnichnik joins us from Berlin to talk about it. Hi, Matt. Hi there. So if you had to sum up this speech in five words or less, what would you say? More of the same. Okay, there you go. Perfect. So is uh, let's go through a few of those points just to, I guess, um, you know, just for people who may not be so familiar with what the same is. I mean, some of the big issues of the moment, I guess, are, are Russia and China. Did he have much to say on those? He had a lot to say about both of those, but it sounded really like Merkel and her team and everything that he sort of sketched out on that front, you know, would be very familiar to, to anyone who knows uh, what German policy is today. And what that means in concrete terms is that they're willing to criticize both countries when they start uh, mistreating minorities or invading other people's countries and that type of thing. But at the same time, they feel that these are very important relationships for Germany and they don't want to jeopardize them fully especially, I think, the commercial relations with China, which will be, I suspect, a big issue in in the years to come as the United States and some of its other allies really try to uh, isolate China to to a degree. Right. Now, Laschet's uh, conservative bloc, if you like, the CDU-CSU, is neck and neck in the opinion polls ahead of the September general election with the Greens. You know, their Chancellor candidate, Annalena Baerbock, has made quite a splash since she was chosen. Where do you see the big dividing lines between Laschet and the Greens on foreign policy? Well, on China specifically, it's interesting because the, the Greens have been very much on the the U.S. line here, which is something I think that would surprise a lot of people. They've been very critical of what's gone on in Xinjiang, for example, the suspected human rights abuses there, and uh, sort of writ large, they feel that the West needs to take a much more resolute position towards China when it comes to all of these issues because they recognize that it's an authoritarian state. And I think they don't feel that Germany should really, you know, be in bed, for lack of a better term, with the Chinese when they're involved in all these kind of uh, malevolent behaviors, if you will. You know, the the Greens are a party founded in part, um, you know, on the pursuit of human rights globally, I think that the climate issue is something different. They, they recognize that there needs to be cooperation with China on that front. 
But overall, I would say that they're much closer to the Biden administration than the Lashet camp is on that issue. And the same is true of Russia. They're the main kind of hot button issue at the moment being Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, the Russian-German pipeline that is nearly complete that the United States and many of its allies in Eastern Europe, for example, have opposed and tried to convince the Germans to pull out of. Germany has refused to do so. And just this week, Joe Biden said that he would not go forward with sanctions on some of the entities involved in that project, uh, the German entities. Even so, the U.S. is still very much against that project, and the Greens agree. And so here again, you know, you have Armin Laschet, Angela Merkel, and the CDU really, you know, if not fully supportive of this project, not willing to uh, pull out of it. And, and the Greens kind of taking what many would say is a more principled position and, you know, walking in step with the uh, Biden administration there. Uh, the, 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 the interesting wrinkle in all of this, of course, is that the Biden administration's position is exactly what uh, the Trump administration's was. So uh, you have a rare dovetailing of uh, green ideals and uh, Donald Trump's. Yeah, on, so on the, the, yeah, the Democrats, Donald Trump and the Greens all, all in alignment. Yeah, can't it's be rare too many. coalition. Yeah, can't be uh, can't be too many of those. Uh, is there any area at all where Lashet signalled any sort of departure from 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 Merkel in terms of foreign policy? You know, I wouldn't say that there was. You know, he he proposed a national security council, which you know is something that might surprise a lot of people outside Germany that it doesn't have one. But this is more kind of a technical proposal. I think you know the purpose of this speech. It was interesting because he delivered it in in German, but it was uh, translated simultaneously into a number of languages, including English. And it seemed to me that the point really was to speak to an outside audience to show them that there was going to be continuity in Germany if he wins. You know that they have nothing to worry about. Sort of steady as she goes. And, you know, I think he achieved that. It, the speech did not get as much notice in Germany as I would have expected. It wasn't featured on, on the nightly news, for example, at least not the nightly news I watched. So it wasn't really a big deal in, in Germany. Mm. What about specifically just finally, um, you know, obviously a lot of our listeners would be interested in European policy in particular, which is kind of a signature of Angela Merkel as well. Anything at all there? Any signals and how, how he kind of views the future of the European Union? Yeah, well, here again, to quote Laschet, he also agrees with the chancellor on this issue, um, which is something he kept saying during his remarks yesterday. You know, he signaled that he would be open to more cooperation with Emmanuel Macron and, and talked about his, he used the word uh, Leidenschaft in German, which is like, you know, love of, of Europe. Uh, passion for, maybe. Passion for Europe. And, um, you know, I think this is an, an issue that's close to his heart because he was an MEP and so forth. But in substance, it sounded very much like, you know, Merkel's policies. And he also made clear at the end that uh, anyone hoping f that the recovery fund would be a first step towards more uh, debt mutualization in the uh, EU, in the Eurozone, is going to be very disappointed. OK, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Now let's hear from Javier Solana, the former Spanish foreign minister, former NATO secretary general, former EU foreign policy chief. 
These days, he's president of Esadi Hio, the Centre for Global Economy and Geopolitics, a research institute in Spain. And he's still very much plugged into international affairs, as I found out when I spoke to him on a Zoom call from Madrid earlier this week. It was, as we say in this business, a wide-ranging conversation, covering subjects including semiconductor chips, vaccines, the Balkans, a speech by John F. Kennedy, European defence and much more. I've tried to pick out just a few highlights, starting with the big story of the week. I asked Solana what Europe could and should be doing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and trying to revive the peace process. I really think that we have a responsibility. We have been very, very much linked to the peace process. We founded the quartet I found when I was... For instance, the quartet has not been able to meet. It's very dramatic. I mean, nobody questions that Israel has the right to defend themselves. But the question is how? How do you do that? And I think the manner this is being done is, is, is really catastrophic. In the European Union, what is difficult is to find a, a full consensus on Israel. Never has been a clear consensus about Israel. And in particular, when the situation is like this, but we should be able to do something for stopping this, stopping and helping the people which are suffering. Mm. But should should the Europeans at least say more clearly, we condemn, we find this use of force by Israel disproportionate? Should they at least go that far? I think something something like that. We know the response. We know already the response. You know, the, 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 you are crazy and, and you don't know what is, you are defending terrorism. It is a response which is absolutely not true. <laughs> mm. But that is a typical response of Netanyahu. Okay, I cannot be more clear, and uh, I, I'm sorry that I, I, I am not in a position now to do anything but uh, talking to you. If we move on to another topic, and that's the transatlantic relationship. Now, in a sense, the European Union has a has many opportunities with the Biden administration, which is much more interested in working, you know, collaboratively with Europe. But where do you see the challenges in working with the Biden administration? Where do Europe and this administration not see eye to eye so much? I mean, I am a friend of President Biden. I mean, I, I met him a long time back when he was president of the Commission for Foreign Relations in the Senate. And how would you describe him then? How do you describe him as a person, as an interlocutor? So I like him very much. And uh, I think that uh, what he's doing, uh, I think that he's, uh, he's a, a good human being. And I'm very impressed what he is doing. Because it's not only that uh, he is uh, revoking everything that Trump did wrong, very wrong, and everything that was done wrong, from my point of view, Trump, were many things, most of them have been changed uh, instantaneously all. Everything is not perfect. I have a disagreement with them on the, the question of how to deal with the global issues. I think this sentiment that uh, we have to go through a, a new summit of democracies, I don't think is the best approach to solving the strategic global problems. And in particular, the relationship with China, the relationship with, uh, with other countries, I think we have to be much more open. And uh, I have the sentiment that climate change it could be a door opener also. 
I think that uh, it's a triangular consensus, I think, of Europeans, Americans, and to a certain extent Chinese, that uh, this is a topic that we have to really face, and uh, with numbers, because now there are commitments on the table. The Chinese commitment is a little bit more fuzzy because still they have uh, coal, they are burning coal, and then, but they need it, so they have. Uh, but uh, as far as European and, and, uh, and the United States, we are on the same page. And if it's an agreement on that, which is a global problem, I think that uh, we will have to question again, why don't go further to other topics? I mean, this is possible. This is the biggest one. Why don't we do something on vaccines with the third world, for instance, together? Why don't we build the, 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 health, the World Health Organization better? Why don't we do something uh, on other topics? Uh, how do we handle technology included on that? I mean, if you look at the situation of chips, semiconductors today, oh. it's, a, it's a real, real dangerous situation. And the, the demand is growing and the, and the production is, is going down. So we have very difficult questions in front of us. But here is where we have to be intelligent to resolve these 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 problems. So, if I understand you correctly, you you are worried about the Biden administration's approach of kind of dividing the world into democracies, and they're our friends, and other countries are not democracies. I mean, the the, the confrontation part should be uh, diminished as much as possible. Um, colleague of mine asked me to ask you. What do you think Europe's security architecture will look like in 20 years? I guess, how much will Europe be, you know, guaranteeing its own security and how much how much will, you know, still be reliant on the US? Well, it, I mean, uh, there are two, two or three things that I would like to say about that. I mean, on capacities and capabilities, we have to have capabilities more for the 21st century. So we don't need tanks. So it's a different, a different concept of what is going to be the security of the 21st century. We should not invest on, on things which are the past. I think the mechanism of decision making, it has to be easier. So it's too, too complicated sometimes. And I think that eventually I will be supporting majority vote on some issues related to foreign policy. I think we could move in that direction. And um, we have to have the courage to do it. One last thing, we like to ask people if they are reading or listening to or watching anything at the moment that they would like to recommend. Is there anything you're reading at the moment? Oh, yes. Watching on TV or, you know? Well, uh, it wouldn't surprise you, but uh, Walter Isaacson, was the president of Aspen Institute who had written beautiful biographies like uh, Einstein and, uh, and... Steve Jobs, I think he did as well, right? Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. He has come out uh, last... I just read it. Code Break. Code Break is the history of uh, the Nobel Prize on chemistry in 2020. It's two ladies that discover how to handle the genome. It's a wonderful Thank you very much, Dr. Solana. Really, I've really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you very much. And just to recap on that recommendation, the full title of the book recommended by Javier Solana is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Dudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race by Walter Isaacson. 
And that's all the time we have on this episode of You Confidential. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for free or follow us so you get every episode automatically from now on. Please also consider leaving us a review. We got a very nice one recently all the way from Australia. Whether you're right here in Brussels, listening around Europe or far beyond, it's always great to hear from you. You can also email us directly if you prefer. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Many thanks to guest producers and old friends of the podcast, Antonio Fernandez and Wadon Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>